Welcome to the Political Risk Brief. My name is Jonathan Barron, Principal of Barron Public Affairs. Thank you for joining us at the intersection of politics, demography, ethnography, current events, and economics. Our topic today, China's businesses go global. Joining me is Johnny Fluger, strategist of Barron Public Affairs. Great to be here, Jonathan. And Jeremy Furchgott, director and leader of our China practice. It's great to be here. Our topic, which is explored in our political risk brief posted at our website, baronpa.com, in the library section, looks at China's great expansion in international business competition, where China is going not just from an exporter of goods to the United States, but now seeking in new ways to contest markets that historically have been dominated by U.S. firms. This contrasts quite sharply uh, with the rising military competition between the United States and China. That is, even as that military competition, that great power conflict intensifies, China's access to U.S. markets and its expansion plans continue unabated. And it's that contrast that we're going to explore today and the implications for U.S. business leaders. I want to begin with you, Jeremy. You have the the most experience on our team with China. You've spent time uh, in the region. And I think you can offer some incredible insights into what is unfolding and likely events in the future. First, I think it'd be useful for for our listeners for you to place the current state of the U.S.-China competition in context. How should people understand where that competition stands today and where is it likely to head in the coming months and years? Well, the main thing to keep in mind is that right now we're living in two worlds. We're living in one world in which China is the great power competitor of the United States and the U.S. national security establishment is focused on China as a competitor. We're also living in a world in which there is broad economic integration between the United States and China and a lot of commercial activity really across the board, across the entire economy. And It's strange how these two worlds are coexisting. We're living in both worlds at the same time, and that creates a lot of interesting dynamics that we're going to be exploring in today's podcast. And I think it's very much counterintuitive that at the moment where the U.S.-China military competition and potentially confrontation is reaching new heights, the economic relationship with a few bumps and a few shifts here and there continues largely unaffected. And in fact, from the events we observe, China is going to increase its presence and its activity in the United States. So again, these two things would not seem to go together, yet they do. And I think it causes a great bit of confusion about how the U.S. approaches the relationship with China and reveals some of the constraints on the U.S.'s ability to actually affect the trajectory of the bilateral economic relationship. Johnny, as a keen observer of Washington political culture and Washington elites, how has it been that the U.S.-China relationship has so stubbornly, some would say, traveled this trajectory of ever-increasing bilateral entanglement and economic integration, despite all of the tensions on a range of issues. There is a tribe, a community here in Washington that for decades has been invested in a variety of ways in greater engagement between the United States and China. We explored one subtribe, one facet, one face of this community in what I think was our first podcast on PNTR, which is to say diplomats who themselves in many cases had grown up in China, the children of U.S. missionaries there. I think that is just one subset of a broad community of people who for a variety of reasons, and I think with good intentions, 
have been of the view that more U.S. interaction with China will redound to U.S. interest. I think that community is very much entrenched, has a lot of intellectual capital that it's developed over the years, and it will not let go in a sense of the relations that have been built, especially since the 1990s with Beijing. And I think, Johnny, as evidence of that, just consider that in the last few years, we've had arguably the most anti-China president in recent memory, Donald Trump, followed by a global pandemic that without question originated in China, some would say is the result of Chinese malfeasance or at least incompetence. And yet as we sit here today, the economic relationship continues as it existed before. Yes, there were tariffs. Yes, there has certainly been a dip in imports to the United States from China, but the numbers haven't budged all that much, especially when you consider those two realities, a deeply anti-China populist president and a pandemic that is clearly attributable to events within China. And yet what you say, Johnny, is exactly the case. The relationship continues and in fact, as we'll talk about today, deepens. I think there are two things to consider as well. The first would be that anti-China sentiment or populism focused on China historically has been seen as de classe, and especially in the Republican Party, in the conservatism of the 1950s and 60s, shaped by William F. Buckley, the people who were focused on China from a hawkish perspective were seen as lacking credibility associated with the Bircher movement, et cetera, et cetera. I think it takes a while, given that background, given that legacy, for credible critics of China to work their way into positions of influence in the policy conversation. That would be a point one, Jonathan. And point two is that this country has its own sordid history related to the Chinese Exclusion Act and discrimination against Chinese immigrants to the country in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And I think both of those things, although not necessarily on the conscious minds of any policymaker or think tank scholar at a contemporary moment, certainly impact how fast the conversation around China accelerates in a critical direction. As we think about the very inconsistent nature of the U.S. approach to China, I think a great recent case study is the journey traveled by Senator Marco Rubio of Florida's Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And I think there's two really important things to note about that legislation. The first is that it was approved by the House and Senate in the House by a voice vote, which means essentially without overt opposition, and then under, I believe, a unanimous consent decree in the Senate, which means, again, without any visible opposition. Yet, we know that there was tremendous opposition to Senator Rubio's measure. So although it became law, and if you were judging by the surface activity, reflects a absolute consensus within the U.S. political system, the reality is a lot more complicated. And so I do think that Senator Rubio has really achieved something remarkable in bending the curve of U.S. policy towards China, but he did so only with incredible exertions and despite great opposition. And I think that the legislation now law really is a landmark in U.S.-China relations. And we'll see 
if this is the not beginning, but if this is emblematic of a more aggressive approach by the U.S. to the economic relationship or it is something else. And I think it's worthy to go back and look at Senator Rubio's comments on his legislation when it was approved by the Senate. We as a country have become so reliant on China that we've turned a blind eye to the slave labor that makes our shoes, our solar panels, and much more. But that changed today. After months of working on this and negotiation and having to play a little hardball, my Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act is, is going to become law. It's a common sense bill that says if, if you make things in Xinjiang, then you need to prove that there is no slave labor involved in making it before you can bring that stuff into the United States. In other words, the proof is now on the businesses, not the burdens on them to show that they, op that they are not operating using these work camps. And if you can't prove it, then your product doesn't enter the United States. It's that simple. So I hope and urge President Biden to sign the bill into law immediately. It's time to end our economic addiction to China, and that starts by cracking down on slave labor. One thing that's remarkable, Jonathan, is that the U.S. government has been, it seems, more effective at constraining the activities of U.S. companies in China, you know, with the recent Xinjiang bill as an example, than in actually constraining the activities of many Chinese companies. It's remarkable that the Trump administration tried to effectively block WeChat and TikTok in 2020 and failed. And the fact that the Trump administration was unsuccessful in blocking the presence of Chinese tech companies in the United States suggests that it's hard to imagine a future administration being successful in that regard. So there's just this interesting dichotomy between the latest Xinjiang bill constraining the activities of U.S. companies in China, yet the U.S. government having failed to constrain the activities of certain Chinese companies in the United States. The Rubio legislation as enacted, and I think it's just useful to go to the actual statutory text, reads as follows. And it says, the commissioner of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection shall, except as provided by subsection B, apply a presumption that with respect to any goods, wares, articles, and merchandise mined, produced, or manufactured wholly or in part in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region of the People's Republic of China or produced by an entity on a list required by clauses – and I won't go through all those numbers – the importation of such goods, wares, articles, and merchandise is prohibited under Section 307 of the Tariff Act of 1930 and such goods, wares, articles, and merchandise are not entitled to entry at any of the ports of the United States. There are some exceptions listed in the legislation or now in the statute, but they are quite narrow. I think, Jeremy, it's useful for you to talk about this very obscure region of China for most of us, Xinjiang. What should Americans, what should observers, what should policymakers and business leaders understand about Xinjiang and its importance to Beijing? China's really concerned about what's happening there because it's been an area that over the past few decades has just become increasingly problematic for Beijing. It flies in the face of China's narrative that the Chinese government is reunifying China. This concept of unifying China is a concept that's a little foreign to the United States. We don't think of the United States as being actively reunified. But in China, it's very much a theme in the political conceptions of the country that China needs to be reunified. And as opposition to Chinese government increased in Xinjiang over the past few decades, it just became an increasingly sore thumb for Beijing. So it's been a problem that was getting worse for years. Uh, when I was there in 2012, 13, 14, 
there's a very clear sense, or I had a very clear sense that it seemed like the place was about to blow up. I mean, it was palpable. Obviously, the region did not actually descend into the levels of conflict that other parts of the world have seen, but it's also been the focus of a, a level of repression that other parts of the world have also not seen. So what U.S. companies really need to know is that there are parts of China that are very problematic for the Chinese government, and U.S. companies doing business with entities in those parts of China should be aware of the political risk, the political risk in Beijing, but also the political risk in Washington, D.C. What's so interesting about the Rubio measure is that it really does depart from the approach of the United States over the past 20 or so years, which was largely as follows. To have a almost entirely unconstrained U.S.-China economic relationship, but then have an expectation that companies would follow a series of mainly unwritten rules and standards in their conduct in China, which of course created a gray zone that was almost impossible to comply with. And so we've seen companies struggle mightily over the past 20 years to get that right. There's an expectation of competing in China, of sourcing in China, of tapping into China's vast domestic market, but in a way that is consistent with U.S. norms while complying with China's formal rules. And that has been a very difficult task. And I think the U.S. government put American companies in an extremely difficult position. And at the same time, several administrations were not particularly supportive of U.S. companies in China in trying to resist some of the more stringent approaches of Beijing. So it's been in some ways an impossible circumstance. But the Rubio measure now really begins to put in place laws, rules, clear black and white rules on how U.S. companies are going to conduct themselves in China. So this is very different from the undefined opaque system that existed for a long time and not clear where it will lead, not clear this is the beginning of something of a bigger trend, but it is noteworthy, I think, in that regard. I completely agree, and I think that it also raises interesting questions about which other parts of China or elements of Chinese society might become future targets of similar restrictions. Now that Xinjiang and, and uh, Uyghur labor has been the focus of this latest bill, I mean, one could think of other future bills that might uh, focus on other parts of China. Tibet is an obvious target. China's Mongol population is another possibility. Uh, but there are also parts of China that aren't geographic or ethnic, ethnically based. I mean, one could envision restrictions on doing business with Chinese entities that are particularly close with the Chinese military or certain other parts of the Chinese government, or even restrictions on doing business with certain environmental bad actors. So as we now go to the other side of the ledger, which is we see this increasing conflict and competition in the military realm, we do see the example of action in the Rubio measure. China also has undertaken, and this is really the core of our recent brief, a vast expansion of its international competition in sectors that heretofore uh, have been dominated by the United States. And those include things like cloud computing, logistics, entertainment, and retail. And I think it'd be useful, Jeremy, just for you to give some highlights of examples of where we see this increased activity by China's corporate titans in the global market. Well, there are a couple examples that are particularly interesting to me. One is the rise of apps in the United States that are basically Chinese apps. TikTok, of course, has been tremendously successful. 
in the retail space, Shein is a fast fashion app that has become incredibly popular in the United States, and Shein is Chinese-based as well. And it's remarkable to see that even though U.S. tech companies have been kicked out of China or otherwise effectively blocked from the Chinese market, Chinese apps in certain cases are becoming some of the most popular apps in the U.S. market. So that's one really interesting example. Another example I'd like to point to is the logistics sector, where right now most of the global express freight sector is controlled by U.S. or European companies, DHL, UPS, and FedEx. Chinese companies have been aggressively trying to increase their capabilities in this sector and with some notable progress in the past few years. Several Chinese companies have their own shipping flights and have been flying directly to the United States as well as to Europe and other parts of the world. And, you know, it's interesting to think about what a world might look like in which Chinese shipping companies were getting significant share of the global express freight market. One thing that I think is a little bit of a blind spot in some of the political conversations in D.C. about the presence of U.S. companies in China is the strategic value that the United States gets from certain types of U.S. companies being active in the Chinese market. Jeremy, what is your assessment of the prospect of U.S. firms in China competing for Chinese consumers? That is not sourcing goods, not China as a manufacturing provider, but actually competing for Chinese consumer dollars. How do you view the outlook for American companies in China? I think for certain consumer-facing brands, the outlook could be fairly positive because Chinese consumer brands just historically have not done well and have lagged behind their Western counterparts. So, I think at a human or consumer level, there's reason for U.S. companies to be optimistic. Now, the question is, will Beijing let them operate? And many U.S. companies have had tremendous obstacles in the Chinese market, and it's hard to see some of those obstacles going away. And And I think that a lot of U.S.-based companies are probably trying to weigh the the attractiveness of the consumer market versus the political risk they face in China from the government of Beijing. Jeremy, sort out the following for us. On one hand, American brands have been very powerful in China and Chinese consumers have clearly indicated a preference for American brands. On the other hand, there is also a rising economic nationalism in China and American and other brands have been under enormous pressure from the government and in some cases vilified uh, and put at a disadvantage relative to emerging or established Chinese brands. So which side of that equation do you think prevails in the medium to long term? Is it Chinese economic nationalism or is it the desire of Chinese consumers for high profile American brands? I think in the long term, it's going to be Chinese consumers' desire for high profile either American or other Western brands. I think that one of the reasons why the Chinese government is so focused on imposing obstacles on U.S. companies is that my sense is that many Chinese elites are aware of this weakness in the Chinese economy, just the challenges that China's had in producing 
brands that are true brands, that are brands that people actually really want to be associated with. And this is something that China faces at, at the individual consumer level and also faces at the geopolitical level. I think there's probably a sense among Chinese strategists that China as a geopolitical brand is not an attractive brand. China coerces countries, but countries probably are not flocking to become partners with Beijing uh, because they really like China, but it's because they're somehow coerced. And that's not really what a brand is about. You know, a brand is about being trusted and being wanted and all the things that come along with that. And do you think that weakness, that vulnerability the Chinese recognize about the insufficiency of their brand equity, does that incentivize and drive forward decoupling by the Chinese, meaning they then seek, in fact, to eliminate that advantage to the United States by in a systematic and broad way propping up their own indigenous brands? Or do you think that attempt will prove unsuccessful given the appetite of Chinese consumers? I think there's going to be this tug of war where the Chinese government's going to be trying to push out Western brands to try to prop up the local ones. The local ones are not going to be successful. The Chinese consumers, I think over time, are going to continue to want to have access to those trusted, respected Western brands. And so at times, maybe some of these Western brands are going to be allowed back in, but then the government's going to clamp down. It's going to be this highly unstable situation because it's going to be driven by Beijing's frustration that at an individual company level, the brands, the local brands are not as successful. But most importantly, at a macro level, the brand equity of China is not what Chinese leaders want it to be. And as long as there is that, not just disappointment, but uh, you know, more than disappointment, that, that anger and frustration, I think that consumer-facing companies, whether they're U.S. or Western or other non-Chinese consumer-facing companies, are going to be caught in the middle of a very complicated situation. In terms of domestic politics, even if one argues that the American political system is prepared to meaningfully constrain the U.S.-China economic relationship, which has not been the case as we've discussed for the last two decades, in fact, quite the reverse, the return of inflation and the return of the politics of inflation serves, I think, as a pretty meaningful constraint on U.S. policymakers in this area. Johnny, I think you've observed inflation and the political effects of inflation and the lack of American memory for inflation because it's been so long you know, since America really had inflation as a leading issue. How do you think about that constraint on U.S. policymakers created by inflation? It's real. We've seen, I think, the supply chain disruptions of the pandemic resonate in the political system. I think one area where we've seen this is in the meatpacking industry. There was almost no scrutiny of the major beef, poultry, pork producers in the country, as far as I could tell, before the pandemic. But the minute that prices began to go up and there began to be shortages, this became a salient issue for policymakers on all sides, especially now the Biden administration. The minute that 
policymakers perceive that their constituents or members of Congress and, and the administration perceived that their constituents were going to have to pay more for that chicken breast at the supermarket, they began to do things that they had never considered previously. I think that's a banal example of what we're seeing insofar as that a corporate sector is being confronted with risk that it has not been confronted with arguably in the century. Johnny, this past summer, I think there was a seminal event that really did shake Washington, and that was the Chinese hypersonic missile test in July, acknowledged by General Mark Milley in October. I don't want to get too much into the classification of what we saw, but what we saw was a very significant event of a test of a hypersonic weapon system, and it is very concerning. I think I saw in some of the newspapers they used the term Sputnik moment. I don't know if it's quite a Sputnik moment, but I think it's very close to that. So it's a very significant technological event that occurred or test that occurred by the Chinese, and it has all of our attention. This test had a profound effect on Washington. Beyond the obvious, Johnny, of, wow, the Chinese are deploying a very important technology that has military implications, uh, what did it mean inside Washington, D.C.? I would contend that it was a psychological blow to many foreign policy experts and defense experts here. For the last, I would say, five years, there has been a great focus on U.S. investment in those technologies that the Chinese are seen as rapidly developing. Artificial intelligence is one, and hypersonics, as an example, is another. And I think as that rhetoric has been deployed and significant amounts of capital, taxpayer dollars, have gone into those programs, we've wanted to believe that we are keeping pace with the Chinese, that they are not ahead of us in certain ways. And I think the aesthetic of a test like that leads people to question, are we really keeping pace with Chinese technological development? I can't answer that particular question, but I do think it compounds a feeling that many people have, especially in the area of defense, that our programs that make things that go boom cannot produce those things anymore like they could, for example, during the Cold War. The agonists related to the F-35 program and the challenges that have been experienced in deploying that platform after decades of development, I think there is a sense that, wait a second, we don't have the capability to bring something to fruition in the way that the Chinese do. It's kind of the military version of the rhetoric that presidential candidate Trump himself used during his campaign. We have $20 trillion in debt and our country's a mess. You know, it's one thing to have $20 trillion in debt and our roads are good and our bridges are good and everything's in great shape, our airports. Our airports are like from a third world country. You land at LaGuardia, you land at Kennedy, you land at LAX, you land at Newark, and you come in from Dubai and Qatar and you see these incredible, you come in from China, you see these incredible airports, and you land, we've become a third world country. Jeremy, we're coming up on an important year in China. There is the Olympics. There is a party congress that is scheduled, I think, for the fall. And I would also note there's been a flurry 
in recent weeks and months of predictions of war with China. And I can't recall a time in recent memory or even in distant memory where there have been so many confident predictions that the U.S. and China are headed for a you know, so-called kinetic confrontation. Yes, there's been discussion of years of the Thucydides trap that has been sort of in the public intellectual conversation for some time, but we now see much more specific predictions of a U.S.-China war likely around Taiwan, but there are other scenarios as well. What should we expect in China in this important year with the Olympics and the Party Congress? And what do you make of these U.S. predictions of a confrontation? In other areas, China has looked at U.S. predictions and has tried to get ahead of those predictions. And so there's a very real risk that China is going to take seriously U.S. predictions of a war over Taiwan, try to get ahead of the curve, and try to somehow start that war. So, Jeremy, just explain this for our listeners because it's a very nuanced but I think deeply insightful point, which is that China looks to the West for predictions, assumes that those predictions mean something, and therefore it has a self-reinforcing quality. Just walk through that a little bit and give that some detail. The following possibility must be taken seriously, which is that U.S. observers, well-meaning observers, may predict that there could be a war over Taiwan because they predict that China is going to do something. Now, it could be that China might be considering doing something, but China could listen to those predictions and focus on the predictions that it thinks are the most sound. Uh, essentially, it can use all the various predictions and speculation as a kind of crowdsourced way of coming up with strategy for the next couple years. And China may come to the conclusion that the U.S. predictions should be right and that actually a war does make sense and that, you know, the U.S. side is predicting a war. Well, maybe there will be a war. And if there is going to be a war with the United States, then we want to get ahead of the curve and make sure that we're going to win that war. So there's a real risk that these predictions coming from the U.S. side create self-fulfilling prophecies. There's another interesting dynamic here, which is that I think that many American elites tend to think of solutions belonging to problems. They see a problem and they think of solutions. If you look at China's history over the past uh, 70 years, and even going further back before communist China, China often lets problems remain unresolved. If you look at China's border with India, it has remained unresolved since 1960 or so. And it's quite possible that the Taiwan issue will just remain unresolved. I think if one looks at China's behavior, it's entirely plausible that a problem like Taiwan could remain unresolved for far longer than U.S. observers might expect. So it's an important eventuality for, I think, U.S. observers to take more seriously than they have thus far, which is that the status quo might continue or there might be ways for uh, the United States to encourage the status quo to continue in an unresolved fashion. Jeremy, I know that you have conducted, as part of our work, very close analyses of Chinese organizational culture 
in fact, biographically, I know you had an early experience in your career where your internship at a Chinese company was approved by the chairman of the company, which was a very large v- vice enterprise. chairman, I think. Excuse me. The, the number two person at the company. Right. Yes. Uh, and although I'm sure you were a very qualified and gifted intern, uh, nonetheless, I think that says more about Chinese organizational culture than even your very impressive credentials. But based on your understanding of Chinese organizational culture, what should U.S. business leaders expect as Chinese companies contest more forcefully global markets, including the U.S. market? It's a great question. I think that there's been far too little understanding of how these Chinese companies operate. There are a few Chinese companies that have gotten a lot of media coverage in the United States, Alibaba, of course, over the past year or two. But by and large, I think there's very little understanding of these large Chinese companies. There are a couple things to look for. One is Speed and agility, one thing that we've seen in our study of Chinese organizations is a comfort with shifting business models in a way that would be surprising to many U.S. observers. So a Chinese company might branch into a new business line in a way that would be surprising to its U.S. competitors but might be very normal in a Chinese context. And so just the basic rules and definitions that U.S. companies are thinking of could change very quickly. A competitor that's offering one type of product and service might just quickly branch into another area. So that's one thing to look for. The second is a comfort with ambiguity about certain rules and boundaries that U.S. companies like to have a lot of clarity on. So comfort with activity that may not technically be illegal, but just may be a little bit ambiguous maybe a little difficult to pin down exactly activity that might be perhaps improper, unseemly, but perhaps not technically illegal. Just a comfort with blurred definitions that in U.S. organizational culture is, um, you know, U.S. organizational culture prioritizes clarity and clear responsibilities and clear definitions and clear communication And what we've seen in Chinese organizations is often the opposite. And of course, the great irony is that U.S. policy on China and the economic relationship with China has been anything but clear. So even as we demand and companies themselves demand clarity, there's been so little clarity around how U.S. companies really should engage China as a market and the rules around China. And one example that's emerged related to that, Jonathan, and I think will emerge more fully is – the energy transition, electric vehicles, renewable energy technologies, based on some of the analysis we've done, we've seen that a very high percentage of world mining and production of critical minerals is done in China. And you might say that's not surprising. We've heard about rare earths for a long time, but it goes well beyond rare earths. So as an example, a number of U.S. car companies recently have announced that they are going to move heavily into lithium iron phosphate batteries. If you look at global phosphate production, China produces 40% of phosphate. Morocco, including Western Sahara, is the largest producer, but China still has 40%. And based on our analysis, policymakers and the advocates of these aspects of the energy transition have not really thought through what this will mean for our relationship with China. 
there is not an awareness yet that, at least in the case of electric vehicles, we might be trading OPEC for China. And I think that shows how this economic relationship is very challenging to this political trend toward greater scrutiny of China. Are we going to sacrifice U.S. mobility if we transition the light-duty fleet to electric vehicles by engaging in a confrontation with China if they have the resources we need beyond rare earths to fuel our vehicles? I'm not sure about that. Johnny, your comments about uh, electric vehicles remind me of a pattern that we've seen among certain Chinese technologies, which I think is important for U.S. companies to keep in mind. Essentially, we've seen that the adoption curve of brands and technologies and products in China is very quick, but the opposite is also true. The kind of fall off is also very rapid as well. So you have companies and products and technologies that pop up very quickly and then they kind of decline in popularity very quickly as well. I'm thinking, for example, of Bike Share, which was all the rage in D.C. a couple years ago, first emerged in China a few years ago initially with pedal bikes and then electric bikes. And there was just an incredible amount of capital that was invested in some of these bike share companies and became a global phenomenon, including in the United States. And then I think many of these companies either failed or had to pivot away from bicycles because it turned out to be a fad. I point to this not because I think that there's anything really particular about bicycles. I think there's something about technology in China. The way China interacts with products and technologies might be different from U.S. counterparts. It's something we've seen in the historical literature as we've studied examples of technology adoption in China in the early 1900s. Uh, There have also been instances of sudden interest and quick uptake followed by decline in popularity. So there could just be some interesting asymmetries between the cycle of product adoption in the United States compared to China. I want to thank our listeners for joining us today. Thank you, Jeremy and Johnny, for a terrific discussion. For those of you interested in reading our political risk brief on this topic, please go to barronpa.com. You can also follow our company on our company LinkedIn page, and you can subscribe to our newsletters also at our website, barronpa.com. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you'll join us for a future episode of The Political Risk Brief. 